0: We're in this book of Second uh, Peter, chapter one, and we're talking about decision making and how people change. And my thesis has been uh, centered on this little diagram. It shows uh, a man, and I said the Second Peter chapter one says basically that there are are two types of people there. There is uh, in, in the kingdom of God. There, is, there are believers who make Christ central in their lives, and they pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come in my life this day. I want to honor you this day. And, and so that they're, they're centered on the reality of Christ, and they think about it, and they meditate on it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they change. And, and the Bible says that if you live that way, then you will be fruitful, you'll be productive, you will not stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in other words, you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant." Conversely, I think Second Peter says there's another group of people that are regenerate. They're, they know the Lord. They're, they're saved. And these people, though, Christ becomes part of the fabric of their life, but not central. And when Christ isn't central, it's easy to, Peter says, to become nearsighted and to become blind and to forget that your sins are forgiven by the work of Christ alone. You don't forget like you just never knew it, but you it's not... It's not central to who you are. And by way of application, they will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They'll get into the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 3 says, but they're built upon the foundation of Christ, not using gold, silver, and costly stone, but wood, hay, and straw, and the house will collapse around them. And and so Peter is exhorting the people to, to change. And to be centered on the greatness of Christ. And we come to a couple of therefore statements this morning. And he says in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, This, he says, Therefore, brothers, make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome. He said, Well, therefore, my brothers, make your calling and your election sure. In other words, show forth that you truly know Christ. Bless your brothers and sisters and have the joy of the assurance of your salvation, knowing that you belong to the Lord, because he says in chapter one, verse five, because you've made every effort to add to your faith, moral excellence, and you've added to your faith on an ongoing basis, knowledge, the knowledge of the Lord. And you've added to your knowledge, self-control. You live a disciplined life under the lordship of Christ. You you, you guard yourself. I was reading Ephesians four recently, verse twenty nine says, "Do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only that which is profitable for those around you, that you may build them up in the Lord." And I just thought, you know, really, that's a matter of self control. You're careful regarding what you say. You say, Lord, let, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, as like the psalmist said, but self-control. And to self-control, you add perseverance. You just, you get up and you walk in obedience. And to perseverance, you add godliness. We studied that two weeks ago. And I said, the godliness can be distilled to this. You walk in the reverential awe and fear of the Lord. That, that the fear of the Lord, the reverence for God is the soul of all godliness, to quote John Murray. And, and then listen to this verse about the fear of the Lord. This is in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26, and it says this, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The reverence for God, the awe of God, the worship of God is a fountain of life that turns you away from the f- snares of destruction and death. So, so you, you do these things. Then you add to God in his brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, you add love. And then it comes to another therefore, which will be the focal point of our passage and our thoughts this morning. This is verses 12 to 15, therefore... I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have and I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that The putting off of my body will soon come about as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things. So The Apostle Peter says, I'm going to remind them of you. I'm going to remind them and teach you in such a way that you are stirred up, and I'm going to keep on reminding them so that you can recall these things, and I'm going to make every effort so that you can remember And the whole passage is about remembering the great things of God. And the question is, how do we continually change? Answer in part is, we continually remember the great things of God. And so Peter says here, I'm I'm going to remind you, and I think it's right to do this as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up. And that's the key word, stir up. To stir up means to be provoked or aroused anew to prize afresh. Provoked or aroused anew to remember or prize afresh. Peter says, I'm going to remind you in such a way and keep on speaking and keep on preaching and keep on loving so that I can stir you up to remember the great things that God has done in your life, to provoke, to stir up, to arouse, to awaken a fresh and glorious appreciation for what the Lord has done. Now, just a real brief side road. So if you have the New International Version, which is a wonderful version, the, the word they use here is refreshed. I want to recall this so you can be refreshed. The English Standard Version that I'm using today says stir up. Now, I agree with most commentators who say the the best translation is not refresh, but to be stirred up. Stirred up is a strong word. It means to be aroused and awakened afresh. Because there's a difference there. See, example, hot August afternoon, Charleston, South Carolina. If you're going to be refreshed, you drink some lemonade. If you want to be stirred up, you drink Red Bull. No. See, Red Bull, five times the caffeine you need in one week at one drink. If you drink Red Bull, it's going to stir you up. You're going to be ready to go. See, there's a difference between being refreshed. I want you to stirred up. Singing, I love hymns, old hymn. It's a refreshing hymn. It's a good hymn. It's called, I Come to the Garden." I come to the garden long while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear in my ear, I'll, I'll whatever. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. That's a good hymn. It's a refreshing hymn. You want to stir me up? You get a big orchestra and you sing a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His rage and power great and armed with cruel, cruel hate on earth is not as equal. But there is one who is greater than he. His name is Jesus. That's the next answer. But you, you sing that, man. I am stirred up. So th- I want you to see this is, this is all about being aroused afresh and anew to prize again. Stirred up. As I think about these things, I want to be stirred up. See, history should stir us up. I'm talking as, as an American this morning. If you're not, I'm glad you're here. But for example, July 4th, 1776, the Revolutionary War has been going on for about a year, three months. And some men get together and they sign this document that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain and rights and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then this ragtag, cobbled together, colonial group of people fought the greatest military power on the face of the earth. And then in October of 1781, a place called Yorktown, a man of incredible leadership and integrity named George Washington, accepted the surrender of the british forces from lord lord cornwallis thus basically ending the revolutionary war that stirs me up stirs me up or i think of 1814 in baltimore maryland outside of a place called fort mchenry a man named francis scott key was a prisoner of war on a british ship and Francis Scott Key was sitting there, and he was thinking, "Will the British take Fort McHenry?" and he couldn't tell if the flag was still there, and then he said, by the dawn's early light and the rocket's red flare, I saw that the U.S. flag was still flying over Fort McHenry." and he wrote the Star Spangled Banner, or I think of a horrific war called the War Between the States and Pickett's Charge, July 1863, and how 620,000 men lost their life in this conflict. Or I think of this event in December of 1941. December the 7th, 1941, surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, USS Arizona. 2,300 men died. The next day, a president with polio said, it's a day that will live in infamy. It stirs me up. I think of July of 1944. American boys storming the beaches at Omaha on D-Day. Or I think of December, or excuse me, September 2011. The Twin Towers go down. And, and, and these, these things stir me up. See, history stirs you up. And then, then on a personal level, you, you all go into your homes, and there there are pictures on the wall, or or other things that that are to stir or provoke memories, or pictures of your grandparents, or your parents, or yourselves as you got married. My, my parents, just my parents have been married for sixty seven years. Or you going down the hallway and you see a picture of a little baby, and it stirs you up. Or there's a picture of a maybe you and your Spouse, and on the day you bought your first home, and see these things are meant to stir us up, and 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 that's what this passage is all about. Is Peter says, "I, I want to I want to provoke afresh, arouse afresh, a deep understanding of the glory of Jesus in your life and what the cross means. That's why I'm writing these things, and I want to stir you up, not not just refresh you. I want to awaken in you worship, and awaken in you. Obedience. See, in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, there's a story. Israel's been going through periods of obedience and disobedience, mostly disobedience. And they're disobedient, and there's a group called the Philistines that just beat the heck out of them. And they're not doing well. And so this man named Samuel, who's a prophet, comes on the scene. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 7. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. The Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound, sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mishpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were sued and did, or subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And, and so what, what they did, they, they set up, they just took this a rock and... They said this, this rock is, represents God's faithfulness. On this day, God subdued the Philistines. And this is a rock we're going to remember. Ebenezer, which means the day or the, the, the time of help. And we, there was a hymn written that says, Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing flow from Songs of deepest praise. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Ebenezer. And Ebenezer, that says, is a stone of help. Here I raise my Ebenezer. And that's what Peter's saying today. I want you to he says I want you to, to raise some Ebenezers. I want you to remember the faithfulness of God. So I'm gonna in that brief time I want to address what hinders us from being stirred up, the atmosphere in which we can be stirred up, and how to be stirred up. So what, what hinders us, first of all? What, what hinders us from being stirred up? Why did, why did Peter say, I'm going to remind you, I want you to recall this, I'm going to tell you again and again, I'm going to rehearse this, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to stir you up. Here's the answer. We need to be stirred up because church, we forget. We just forget. The months go by, the years go by, and We forget. And so we need to, from time to time, and maybe week to week, and we need to be stirred up to remember the great things God has done. When we come to the Lord's table, remember the great things Christ has done. When we come to worship on the Lord's day, remember the great things Christ has done. Remember, recall, be refreshed, and glory in the goodness of Christ. In the book of Joshua, it's a great story. The children of Israel have been one for 40 years, and the Lord says it's time to go into the promised land. And so they come to the Jordan. It's a flood stage. And they they stood on the banks of the Jordan looking across into the promised land. Their hearts just sank. And they said, we we can't cross the Jordan. It's a flood stage. What are we going to do? And God says, here's what you're going to do. He says, you're going to get the priest who carry the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And when their feet touch the Jordan River, it will stop. And there'll be dry ground. And you're going to go across on dry ground. And so the priests, boom, water stopped. They go to the middle of the river and stand there, and the children of Israel go by on dry ground. And then God says to Joshua, the leader, now Joshua, get 12 big guys and get 12 big stones from the middle of the Jordan River and bring them up on the side where the promised land is and make a monument to God. And this is what the Bible says in Joshua chapter 4. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal in the Promised Land. And, And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up as a monument. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. He says this is going to be a living memorial and a monument to help you remember. And so, whenever church, we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. What do these mean? Your children, might ask. This represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ given for us. This is the ultimate Ebenezer. This is the ultimate rock of refuge. And so, we need to continually remember. The second reason that we are not stirred up as we should be and we're hindered is we we have information overload. This is very interesting to me. So, so couple of quotes. Harvard Business Review. Well, first of all, let me tell you this story. So I I went to Yadkinville, North Carolina this week to see my mom and dad. Almost 91 and 86. And so we're out riding around, stop at Family Dollar Store in Yadkinville. Okay, small. I go in to get some toothpaste. I grew up using Colgate toothpaste. That's just my toothpaste of default. And so I go into Family Dollar Store, and there are 13 different varieties of Colgate toothpaste. I mean, there's Colgate that gets black, tartar, whitening, regular, uh, mint. You know, I, I'm just, I said, you got to be kidding me. So I, here's my thought. It's, it's a, so you go into all, all these toothpastes, and I'm going to write Colgate. And I'm going to buy some stock this week in Colgate. And, but this is going to be, I said, you need to have this, this brand of toothpaste. Manly Colgate, <laughs> with a picture of Braveheart on it. That, you guys going in there and I want manly toothpaste. It cuts down on, on the incredible varieties you have to go through. But anyway, that was my experience. Well, Harvard Business Review, 2009, says this. There, there, are, there, are, there are claims that the relentless cascade of information, see we have information overload. The relentless cascade of information lowers people's intelligence. A few years ago, a study commissioned by Hewlett Packard reported that the IQ scores of knowledge workers distracted by email and phone calls fell from their normal level by an average of 10 points. Forbes magazine, November 2014, reported that in 1976, that's just 40 years ago, the Cowboys and the Steelers were in the Super Bowl, 40 years ago, okay, 40 years ago. Gerald Ford was president, not that long ago. There were nine thousand products in the average grocery store, nine thousand. Now there are forty thousand, and you leave with one hundred and fifty items in your grocery cart. Just think about that. And he just talks, and it says this. So, so we are having to ignore tens of thousands of items every time you go shopping. And there's a book I read two years ago entitled The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in an Age of Information Overload by a man named Leviton, who's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at McGill University in Canada. And he says this, Americans took in five times as much information every day in 2011 as they did in 1986. Think about that, five times. Therefore... We have to make a conscious effort to beat back the flood of information to think clearly. And he says, information overload, by definition, is stress-induced by reception of more information than is necessary to make a decision or that can be understood and digested in the given time available, the organized mind. And one thing I thought about the organized mind, it was 400 pages, and after reading it, I thought, this could be 150 pages. So so really, the book is a self-indictment, my opinion. So I just thought about this information overload and all the stuff that, that hits us right and left and all the time, and we goes, it goes on and on and on. And this week I went out, I was with some of our younger staff, they were so bright and so fun to be around, and, and, and we were sitting at the table, and they would just bring up these topics and just talk about it, I'm just, I just loved it. And one topic was favorite Nicolas Cage movies. And I thought, wow, they were saying, that I didn't like that, I, I said, I, I can remember Con Air and Family Man and... National Treasure. That's it, but there were this and this. I didn't like this, I didn't like that. He's good. Here's not, not that good. And I was just, wow. And, and then I pulled one of them afterwards and said, man, I am impressed with the encyclopedic knowledge you have you guys have of some of this stuff. He said, Nicholas Cage? He said, Yeah. So another way of looking at it is it's sad that we filled our minds with so many things that make no practical difference. Hmm. Then I thought about a game I loved 20 years ago, a board game, Trivia Pursuit. Remember that? I used to love to play Trivia Pursuit, especially if it had one of the two car- ca- categories I know anything about. When I was ready to shine. Then I started thinking about it recently. You know, the name of the game tells you how stupid it is. <laughs> who cares? You know, Trivia Pursuit. And see, but that can be a description of life. There's a guy named Richard Baxter who wrote a book entitled The Reformed Pastor, and let me just read it send the worship guide. Just read one paragraph in there it says he says, Throughout, throughout the whole council of our ministry must we must insist chiefly upon the greatest and most certain and most necessary truths and be more seldom and sparing upon the rest. If we, can get, if we can but teach Christ to our people, we shall teach them all. Get them well to heaven and they will have knowledge enough. The great and commonly acknowledged truths of religion are those that men must live upon and which are the great instruments of destroying men's sins and raising the heart to God. Now, now if you read the, the combined works of Richard Baxter, there are several huge volumes. So what is, he's not saying just know the basic rudimentary things and that's it. He said, but you've got to know the basic truths of the Christian faith and continue to go back to them as you're touched on. You must continually understand there's a great eternal creator God who's trying in his glory and in the fullness of time, this great creator God was born of a virgin supernatural, he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for his sins. He was ushered in through his chosen people, the Jews. And he rose victorious over death and he ascended into heaven and the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church and he gave us the Bible and he's guiding us today and one day this great and sovereign and glorious triune God in the person of Christ will come back to to close history and we will give an account to God for our lives and those who've acknowledged him and understood that he alone is our righteousness go to heaven and those who have not, do not go there. You've got to continually go back and I've got to think about those and think about those and remember those those and think about those and I've got to do that. And so I've I've got to say to myself, do not let the information overload of this age, which is unbelievable and in many ways is a blessing, but do not let those things so pull you away that you give your life to trivia after trivia after trivia. Keep the main thing the main thing. And so the the atmosphere in which this happens, and as you study this passage, this is very interesting, and and it's, it's easy to run by it. But look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this. I intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I go, this is a circular to the church of Asia Minor, and Peter is saying, church, you know these things, and you're established in them, but I'm going to remind you of them. I'm going to stir you up. I'm going to remind them. I'm going to stir you up. I want you to call them to your mind after I am dead, and I'm going to remind them to you. And he says, but I thank God that you are, you know them, and you're established in the truth. And I just thought, you know, it's an atmosphere of positive love and encouragement. And I thought of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul's writing the church at Thessalonica, a church. And he says this, he says, verse 9, for, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? He says, now we love you so much we want to come back and see you again. And I thought, what a wonderful way to instruct and love and care for people. How can we possibly thank God for all the joy that's been dumped into our lives because of your existence and the way you've lived before God? And I thought, that's the way we teach. That's the way we parent. That's the way we grandparent. And see, one of the great things about believing in a great God who's building his church is this. Long before I arrived on the scene or anyone else right on the scene, God was working in your life. And long before I'm gone and dead or whatever, the Holy Spirit will be working in your life. And he's building his church and he's building his people. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And he's building us into a spiritual house of worship for the Lord. And it's encouraging. And you, you go to your kids and you say, you know, you just go, you know. I met somebody and just came today for the first time. And they have, she has children, age 10 and 13. And I said, oh man, you're getting ready to enter the Fun years. Fun years. And I said, You know, I was thinking as a parent, before you go in to talk to your child, if they've done something wrong, you stand outside the room and you say, Almighty God, Abba Father, precious Lord, you loved this child before this child was conceived. We gave this child to you, and you're going to work in their life long before they're outside of my residence or my zip code. And I thank you, and they're yours. And then you go in there and you say to your child, You know, I really believe God is working in your life but he's given me as your mom and your dad, I need to tell you a few things I've observed. Just love them. I I love the atmosphere of grace that Peter breathes into this. Hey, church, I know. I know that you are established and you know these things, but let me just rehearse them with you. Let me recall them with you. What a great guy. See, because Peter understood the greatness of grace. Peter cursed the name of Jesus to a servant girl on the night his master was betrayed. He knew grace. He had tasted it. He lived there. So so then, very quickly, how how can we be stirred up? How how can we be stirred up? We're stirred up as we are aroused and awakened afresh to remember the greatness and the goodness of God. And so as I, as I think about being stirred up and aroused and awakened and, and, and thinking, I think about Ebenezer's rocks of remembrance, memorials like in Gilgal and Joshua, and I, just times to remember the goodness of the Lord. And here's, here's what I'm suggesting just by way of application, is, is that when, when significant things happen in your life, or significant decisions are being made, you intentionally come before the Lord and you remember afresh and you dedicate. You make Ebenezers in your life. A couple of examples. So if you're single and you're thinking God wants you to get married one day, um, you, you go out to a park where they're not going to be chopping down the trees and you stand underneath a beautiful oak that may be 100 years old and you say something like this, you said, Lord, this oak it was made by you. And this oak speaks of your unchanging glory and beauty. And I stand beneath this oak on this day, and I give you my life afresh in the area of who I will marry and the children to come from me. And, I, and I, I, This is by Ebenezer. So I'm going to remember this oak in this park in 20 and 30 and 40 years. I did that. I was 19, 20 years old. I was at a Navigator Conference at Tacoa Falls, Georgia. And I went out and I stood on a stump somewhere around that lake. I said, God, I, I, I commit my future wife and the kids you give me to you. And God, I promise you, by your grace, I will do what you tell, tell me to do. I've only been a Christian in a year or so. I know you want me to marry in the Lord. Lord, I will marry a godly person. And I will raise my children in the way of the Lord. And I'm going to remember, remember this stump that's an Ebenezer. And I'm going to give myself to you afresh. Just remembering. we have a newborn baby. We live in this beautiful city. You go out to station 21 or 15 or whatever on the Isle of Palms, and you walk out there, and you put your feet in the ocean with your spouse, and you hold that baby. And you say, God, your creation is beautiful, and is timeless, and you are eternal. And I, standing here with my spouse, Dedicate this child to you. This child is yours. This is my Ebenezer right here. And the years to come, when you hit some rocky roads, you look at your spouse and say, hey, station 21, they belong to the Lord. You go into a new house and you ask your pastor to come over to pray that God would bless this house. Why is there you serve steak and twice baked potatoes and <laughs> cherry pie, you know? And you're just saying. No, you call some people over and you just pray, God, this is your house. And if this is house that's been owned before, in the name of Jesus, we cast out any dark spirits that are in this house. And we want this house to be a place where hymns are sung. And Jesus is praised, and there's laughter and joy. And when there's not that, there are tears of repentance and there's reconciliation because this house, this family belongs to Jesus. We raise our Ebenezer. This is your house. Now, I, I just think to intentionally remember and then to meditate and memorize and think and say, God, this is who we are. The second reason that, that we don't find ourselves stirred up is that, quite frankly, we forget that life is short and that we're on our way to eternity. And Peter says, he says, you know, um, I, I know that the putting off of my body, my death, will be soon as the Lord Christ made clear to me And I'll make every effort that after I'm gone, you'll remember these things. He says, you know, my, my, my life is going to be short. It's going to be short. I'm coming to the end. Remember. See, we don't want to live the way this guy lives. Do you ever look in the mirror? I do. And I go, what happened? Really, what happened? But then sometimes you just say, I just avoid the mirror. And you think you're 20 years old. No, you're not. We're dying. We're, we're going to be dead soon. Even those you who are young, you have a few decades. You're going to be dead. And, and so it, it, it startles you wide awake to realize that life is short. I mean, today's Super Bowl 50. I remember Super Bowl one. I. I was a child, but I remember it. 50. Somebody said, well, you we're know, going to watch Super Bowl 50. I said, what? 50? So so him, I, I, I quoted earlier, was by this guy. It says, uh, here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by the help I'm coming. It's written by a guy named Robert Robinson. His story is very interesting. Robert Robinson was in England. He was a young man. He was a ruffian, didn't care about anything. He was out with a group of guys one night, 19, They had been drinking, and they were going down an alley in London and came upon a gypsy woman who was drunk. And so they kind of... Forced her mouth open, he says, and they poured some more alcohol down her and they laughed at her and, and they said, now we've given you this, you've got to tell us our fortune. They said she sat up and looked around and pointed at Robert Robinson and said, you, young man, will live to see your children and your grandchildren. That's all she said. They laughed and walked off. And he said he couldn't get that out of his mind. He said, children, grandchildren, children. He was 19. A few months later, a guy named George Whitfield came to London to preach. A great evangelist. He was 20 by that time. He goes to hear Whitfield and he hears about the gospel and Christ died on the cross for our sins and personal faith giving you a right relationship with the Lord. And, and he came to faith. Then he started training for the ministry and two years later he wrote this hymn, age 22. Here I raise my Ebenezer. As a 22-year-old, I raised my life. Here there, by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger <coughs> wondered from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Life is brief. So, so church, be stirred up. Be stirred up to be the people God has called you to be, to live for the things of the Lord.